Charlie Brown fawns over a red-haired girl. The problem is, the interest isn't reciprocated. Charlie Brown says to Linus, I'm always thinking about that little red-haired girl, but I know she doesn't think of me. She doesn't think of me because I'm a nothing, and you can't think of a nothing. Linus does what many friends try and do. He tries to make Charlie Brown feel better about himself, but in so doing, right, he minimizes the problem and Charlie Brown's experience. And he says, you're not really a nothing, Charlie Brown. Brown replies, almost. Does a girl ever go around thinking of a point zero 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 one? I'm as close to nothing as you can get. Poor Charlie Brown. You know, we can laugh. It's a comic after all. But this comic, believe it or not, captures the way many Christians feel about themselves. Especially when they deal with some very ugly things that they find within themselves. If not nothing, then close to nothing. Next to nothing. Perhaps we feel so burdened with the sinful desires of our bodies. Or maybe we deal with the sinful desires and the thoughts that haunt us in our minds. And from the very time that we open our eyes, those thoughts are pillaging us, refusing to let up, and we just wish that they would go away. Or maybe we failed again and we feel like we're on that cycle of sin once again. And it just never lets up. And in fact, it's not just a cycle of sin. It's like a downward spiral dragging us down. And so we're hopeless. Or we find ourselves struggling with something new, something we've never struggled before. And so we feel disgusted about ourselves. Or maybe we feel next to nothing because some grievous sin has been committed against us. And with discouragement comes guilt, shame, anger, confusion. And so as Christians, we feel like we are nothing. Christian, if you're feeling that way now, the great news, whether or not you can see it now, believe it now or not, the great news is that your father is a good father. And he desires to lift you up by turning your face and your eyes and your soul to him, to his promises, And the work that he has done for you, is doing in you, and will do to you. Because he loves you. Christian, no matter how shamed or unworthy and rejected you feel, in Christ, there is overwhelming grace to meet your need. It's kind of like a main point, if you want to write that down. In Christ, there is overwhelming grace to meet your need. This morning we continue our series through living in grace, counseling the word. Last week we looked at the sufficiency of God's word to counsel. And this morning here we're going to turn to a truth that we can cling to. And if you turn to the front of your bulletins there, you'll see that our main passage is 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're going to look at a bunch of passages, but this is our leading passage. And this is the truth that we need to cling to, particularly when we're seeking counsel, when we're needing counsel. Remember the world counsels us all the time. But here we turn back to God's truth, truth to live in his grace. And this is what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In order to better understand God's overwhelming grace for you, Christian, we need to start with God's overarching plan for his creation. So here we're thinking like grand scale. We're going to get to what to God's grace to you. But we're looking at what God's grace is going to do in his overarching plan for creation. Here's point number one. What is God's overarching plan for creation? Universal rehab. Universal rehab. You know, in our verse, we hear the language of new creation. This clearly implies us as individuals. Once again, he's speaking to individuals. We're going to get there. But God has set about a rehab plan for the whole entire universe in order to display his power, his sufficiency, his beauty, his goodness, his love, and his glory. And of course, rehabbing something generally implies that something's been broken down, right? 
And we would be absolutely right to, to uh, assume this. According to, the, according to the Bible, the world is very much broken down. And it's broken not because God is a bad builder, but because man is such a good destroyer, a competent destroyer, unfortunately. So when God made his world, that is you and me included, he made everything good. And Genesis chapter 1 reminds us of that. It's good, it's good, everything is very good. So there was Adam and Eve in the garden, and they lacked nothing. Most importantly, it was a place where they had a relationship with God. And naturally so, right? God was their creator. The problem came when man chose not to rely on God, but to rely on themselves and in their self-reliance, in their pride, in their rejection of God, they sinned against him. And because of their sin, they brought irreparable damage to their relationship with God. They committed treason, after all, right? They earned for themselves just condemnation, judgment, and hell. And not only that, though, they brought irreparable damage to their own relationships. So, amongst themselves, right? Instead of protecting one another, instead they turned on one another. Their sin even resulted in irreparable damage to the physical world, as their work became toilsome and difficult. So all of this irreparable damage comes by the hand of man. And of course, when I say irreparable damage, here I'm thinking that man cannot fix it himself. He can't fix his relationship with God on his own. We can't fix our own relationship with each other. and We can't fix our relationship with the physical world. And that's certainly a problem. But God, by his grace, did not abandon his creation. Instead, with a purpose of making all things new, making all things right, he pledges himself to the very ones who rebelled against him. And he pursues them. And he promises to reestablish, to remake or rehab everything that we had messed up. And so in many ways, this whole story here in the Bible, this whole account of God's salvation plan from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, all the way to the back of Revelation, is all about God fulfilling his promise to one day bring his people back into relationship with him where they can enjoy his gracious provision under his loving rule. And the Old Testament looks forward to that day. Remember the big grand picture scheme of things? The Old Testament looks forward to this day, and there is great expectation for God to do this new thing, to fulfill his promise to rehab and to reconcile, to reestablish. And so it's awesome that when God's people are at their lowest, having rebelled against him again and again and again, having found themselves now here, God is judging them, and he sends them under, into exile under a different nation where they're not living according to his rule, they're not worshiping God, they don't have a relationship with him, but yet he promises a great hope of a new heavens and new earth. Listen to this, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Then the former things, that is the bad things, those things ruled by sin, shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's rehab language, isn't it? And he is rehabbing everything, and so there's cosmic hope. But there is even hope for a new heart. So here we get to the individual in light of the grand scheme of things. And here's this actually is Scripture's primary focus in this rehab project the focus in scripture is laid upon the individual, what he's doing to us. This is what he says in Ezekiel 36. Again, people are not in a good state. They're constantly wandering away from God. And God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, as we read the Bible... We come to see that all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. In Christ, God sends his eternal son to reestablish divine presence, right? The relationship that he had with his people in the garden. God reestablishes this. And you see Jesus, he goes up onto the mountain just like uh, Moses goes up onto the mountain. And is where Moses gives the law, Jesus truly exposits the law behind the Ten Commandments. And he institutes God's loving rule. And he saves sinners from judgment by bringing about this great divine reconciliation. Where we deserve to be punished for our own sin, Jesus took our place and he bore the wrath that we deserved and he died on the cross and shed his blood. Three days later, he was raised to new life, showing the world that payment was paid and that the doors of salvation were wide open for those who 
turn from their sins and believe on Him. You know, through Christ's life, if you, if you just read through the Gospels, let's say if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark or something like that, you see there that He's all about this newness. And, and so, naturally, he, with this newness, He begins this new era, this new era of Christ. This is why when he comes onto the scene, he's all about newness, right? So he performs miracles of newness. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's even going to raise himself from the dead. And then even his miracles, let's say in John chapter 2, right? What does he do? He, at a wedding feast, he's making new wine, the celebration of something great because he is here. And then not only does he do miracles of newness, his teaching is about newness too. So Jesus, he tells people of their need to be born again by his sovereign spirit. Not only that though, but he gives a new commandment to love just as he loves in John chapter 13. And then you can think of the church, right? He forms the church. He's forming a new people. And then in his death and his resurrection, he institutes a new covenant by his blood. And then of course in him, there is a new heavens and a new earth. But again, this grand plan of universal rehab that everyone should be looking forward to begins not with things out there, but begins with things in here. So God's people's hearts, the hearts of his people. We are the beginnings or the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. <clears throat> if you guys have ever fixed something up, you know that it can be quite painful. So this experience, right, of tearing down in order to build something up is quite painful. We know it in our own bodies. You know, so if you, you go out and exercise, and you're, you're going to hurt if you haven't exercised in a long time, your body is breaking down, and then your body's going to be built back up. There's some degree of pain, but even more so in God's great plan of rehabilitation and restoration. It might seem painful, but yet it is good. Perhaps we wrestle with all sorts of nagging sins, right? I mean, when you become a Christian, you are drawn out of the kingdom of darkness, and then God helps you look at all of all that stuff that you had just come out of. Sometimes that can be painful. So some of you guys might be struggling with nagging sins where you feel like nothing, discouraged, shamed. You know, once again, you've lied. You can't stop lying to protect your own reputation. And you feel the constant need to deceive or maybe you experience new temptations again that you've never experienced before. And you find your sexual perversion getting more and more perverse and twisted than you have ever known it was. Maybe you suffer from devastating failures that have equally if not more devastating consequences. And so your sleeping around is catching up to you and breaking down all of your relationships that you've spent so long to, to get and to maintain. And our feelings, our cries, our anger reveals that our hearts long for something more, don't they? It, it reveals that we long for something final. When re rehabilitation would finally be brought to an end. I mean, these are the pains of rehab, aren't they? Where we long for something different. But you know what? Sometimes when we long for something different, oftentimes we're longing for something different for the wrong reasons. Or longing for things that are different out of wrong motivation. So sometimes we might long for things that come from despair. So our longing comes from despair. You're tired of singing, sinning against others, tired of sinning against God, and you can't see a clear way forward. And in fact, you can barely see things right in front of you. And so you are hopeless, even though in Christ, he is making all things new. Absolute despair, debilitating shame, debilitating guilt. And so your longing springs from a hopelessness. Or maybe your longing is a bitter and angry longing. One that demands that God fix what you think is wrong and that he do it immediately. And so you're angry, you're angry and, and bitter that God isn't working according to your timeline. But you know what? In scripture, we see that longing for God and longing for his plan to be brought to completion can in fact be a hope-filled and grace-filled longing. A longing that recognizes God's great work of salvation has begun 
and that what he has promised, he will indeed bring it to pass because his own glory is at stake. And our good is in his mind. And we can trust in his timing. I hope you are longing for something greater, something final. I mean, the instinct is good, but we want it to be a longing based in in Scripture, right? In the hope that we have here. And Scripture actually holds out the fact that there is this good longing. Creation longs. Romans 8, 23 and 24, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, waiting for God to set things right. He is the one that subjected it so that we would learn, but then one day he will make it right. And not only the the creation groans, but we too groan. Romans 8.23 says that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this here, scriptural longing, according to Romans 8, is an eager longing, but filled with patience. As it says there in 8.25, there is this waiting, but we wait with patience. That God indeed will bring everything he promises to pass. So we all experience these pains of rehab, these groanings. And so now in light of the pain that we experience and even the discouragement and the hopelessness that we experience, uh, how exactly are we to survive this rehab that we're in? How exactly are we to survive this rehab that we're in? And here we turn to four truths to remember to help us long for the right things. This is point number two. Four truths to remember to help us long for the right things and survive rehab, trusting in the grace of God. Number one, you are loved by God, Christian. You are loved by God. It's a very important important fact to remember that, that this renewal project is birthed out of love. Approaching the task of change, apart from loving the thing that you're trying to change, is just tyranny. Praise God that's not the case, because when God sets about the project, he sets about it in love, and he draws near to the needy because of his great love. So, and this is implied there in 2 Corinthians 15, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 15, verse 8, and you see that this renewal comes through a new relationship with God. New renewal tied to new relationship. He says, all this, that is the new creation, everything that we have in Christ, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It speaks of new relationship that is not initiated by us, but initiated by God. It is from God by his sovereign plan and his divine kindness and his great mercies. And here he replaces our hostility towards him with love. And we know from the book of Romans that we are hostile against God. But here he reconciles us to him by removing our hostility and replacing it with love. He removes even his own divine wrath. And then replaces it with an evident kindness. And God, of course, does this all through the cross of Jesus Christ as he forgives those who have sinned against him. So he restores that relationship that we could not. And it's that that gives logical, that that is the logical priority to the new creation. He sets upon his work with love, claiming it for himself in love. And then he sanctifies and goes to work. Uh, Because uh, Christ bore the wrath that we deserved. He removes that and he replaces it with a new relationship. Look there, you see that the benefits that come through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God does not count their trespasses against them. Alright, the former things he does not remember. Now by does not remember, or something like Psalm 103 where it says that he separates our sin as far as the east and from the west. He doesn't remember these things. It's not saying he, he, he removes them from the data of his mind and says, okay, it's gone. It's like he's not going to hold it against us when he considers our relationship. He doesn't hold it against us. That's what, he mean, that's what it means there. And it's what's implied there when he does not count our trespasses against them. And so now if you are in Christ, God sees you as redeemed through the price of Christ's blood. Christians are dead to sin through Christ's death to sin. Christians are renewed through Christ's new life. Christians are adopted through Christ who calls us brothers and sisters. Christians are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And all of this he gives us because he loves us. This should encourage the discouraged who feel like their sin is ever before us. 
maybe in the midst of that, when our sin is ever before us, we feel like somehow that God has abandoned us. But something to keep in mind, and it's going to sound strange, but it is encouraging, something to keep in mind that just as your sin is ever before you, so your sin is ever before God. Now, to some of you guys, that's condemning. But actually, this should be really freeing. Because it is ever before God, not because he wants to exact retribution for your sins, but because he's undertaking the very debt that we owed. And in so doing, God ensures that all of your sins are accounted for, your sins past, present, and future. So just, friend, as you catalog your own sin, so he catalogs your own sin too. Not in a way where he considers whether or not he really wants you, or whether or not he's really going to pledge himself to save you, but in order to go to the bank, to draw from his divine, infinite resources, to pay for them all. He goes to the bank, grabs the resources, and he goes all in for you. Christ goes to the cross, he plays right into the devil's hand in order to bankrupt him whose power enslaved you and to win you back forever. Any reasonable person who undertakes another person's debts counts the cost, don't they? He knows your past sins. He knows your present sins. He even knows your future sins. And he pays for them all. He secures for you pardon for them all. And not one of them surprises him or makes him consider you a loss. That should encourage us. Our sin is always before God. But that's not a problem because he knows every single one of them and he pays for them all on the cross. It's encouraging, too, to know that God commits all of himself and all of his resources to saving you. So not only all of his infinite grace, but he commits his very own self. The father who planned your salvation right there. He's planning. He's giving his omniscience and his power to saving you. But then he also sends his son who wins your salvation through dying on the cross. But then he also gives you his spirit who brings you all the blessings of salvation. And if you just consider what he's given to you in the Son, you realize how much we have, how much grace he has for us, and how desperately he wants to achieve his plan of salvation so that he would get the glory and that you would be saved. Right. So if he's given the greatest thing his Son, certainly he's going to give us everything else in order to win us and to bring us all the way back home. And here this brings about a hope-filled longing. According to Romans 8.31, it says there, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that is the greatest thing, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also give with him graciously give us all things? Verse 38 says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Not even the very worst sin that is haunting you right now. That sin that has dragged you down once again. Maybe even last night. Not even that will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. He catalogs all your sin. Past, present, and future. And he goes to the cross all in to retrieve you out of the dungeon of depravity. Friends, you are loved by God. See Jesus Christ and know that God gives you everything in Christ. Second, you are no longer under the power of sin. Second truth to remember in rehab, you are no longer under the power of sin. Second Corinthians 5.17 says the old has passed away. The old here refers to the powers of sin that controlled us and enslaved us before we became a Christian. So in the New Testament, you know, we see very clearly that we are following after the ways of uh, the devil. Second Corinthians 4.4 says that our minds were darkened by the God of this age. Ephesians says that we lived according to our corrupt desires, our darkened minds, and we followed after our very own flesh. But in Christ, our bondage to sin has been broken and destroyed. Now the Bible, by God's grace, he, he gives us all these different metaphors to think of salvation. So here we have one. The metaphor is redemption, right? Liberation from slavery. So, so in the Bible, it's, uh, the Bible speaks about our salvation in these terms of liberation. Listen to this, Psalm 107, verse 14. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. 
That's slavery, right? We're supposed to get this picture of in the, in the dungeon being bound to things that we, we, we uh, naturally are bound to in our nature. Verse 15 of Psalm 107, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He, has sh- for he shatters the doors of bronze, those very doors that held us in. And He cuts, the, he cuts into the bars of iron. That's, that's freedom language. That's epic, right? Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So there you see salvation is spoken of in terms of liberation from sin, where the battle of kingdoms take place, and the Son of Heaven is champion. Of course, naturally, the question is, if Christ has liberated me from the dungeon of darkness... Why do I still feel like I am in darkness? Or why do I still wrestle with sin? Well, it's helpful to remember that even though we wrestle with sin, you know, God never promises that we're going to be entirely free from the things that we wrestle with. And But it's over time that he purifies us, right? This is a journey all the way until the end. We're going to talk more about that. But it's helpful to remember that God is an incredibly patient God. Something I was reminded this week by listening to another sermon. And he has chosen to fulfill his rehab plan over time. So think about Abraham, right? He patiently took time to take Abraham's descendants and make them into eventually the nation of Israel. Take Israel, for example. It's not only when he establishes and calls them out of Egypt that he says, okay, you are a people after my own heart and you guys are perfect. But instead he takes time. He lets them learn the lessons that they need to learn on their own. Even their failings and then being restored, they come to realize that they actually need God. He patiently took time to bring about Jesus Christ. And he's patient in establishing the church, right? And so in his wisdom, he patiently, lovingly goes about making all things new in Christ. You know, until Christ brings about this universal rehab, we live in something called in this already, not yet time. We live in the time that is already, but not yet. What that means is we are already saved, right? Our salvation is already. Ephesians chapter 2, right? We have been saved by grace. But at the same time, we are also being saved. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2. So our salvation is already, but then it is not yet arrived fully or in its fullness. And so at the same time, you can think about it in relation to sin. We have been saved from sin, but yet we wrestle with sin. So it's helpful to have the right expectations here. Otherwise, we run into so many problems that we expect Christ to have finished his great work in us, right? I mean, so just think about it for you guys. If you think that heaven should be now, don't you end up being pretty discouraged? You know, think, man, you think, man, if I struggle with my sin, maybe his promises aren't true. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. But then, of course, the biblical truth is he knows exactly what he's doing, which is why in the Bible, he says, look, brothers and sisters, fight for holiness. Pursue Jesus Christ. Make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He knows that this is a sin. He knows that it is salvation has already been won. The devil has been defeated in Christ's death and his resurrection, but God has not thrown away the key to Satan's dungeon, and Satan himself is not going out without a fight. And so this life is to be marked by a fighting. It's a temptation for us to still think that we are enslaved in the dungeon, isn't it? That's another reason why we sin. I mean, just think about it for decades. You walked according to your old ways. To think, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you think for decades, this, this, let's say, perversion of sexuality, we think that this is good because our minds are darkened. And then God draws us out of that state, that kingdom... And naturally, if we doubt God or if we struggle and we're questioning God, we're questioning God's rules, we feel overburdened by it. I mean, don't we kind of naturally just immediately think, gosh, you know what, that actually looks really good over there. We walked for decades like that. We walked the path of sin. And so our instinct, because we still have the fallen nature, is to go back to that path of sin. And so we still wrestle with, wrestle against living our old dungeon ways. But then we also, right, we also struggle to shed off the old dungeon pronouncements 
the dungeon pronouncements, right? The dungeon pronouncements that says that you deserve to be in the dungeon. Why is that? Because you are disgusting, you are guilty, you are worthless, you are defiled, you are unlovable. And so sometimes if we're wrestling with some sort of sin, it's those things, those old dungeon pronouncements that we heap upon ourselves. When in Christ, we know we are not guilty in Christ. You know you are loved by Christ. You know you are freed in Christ. And you, are, you know you are righteous in Christ. Those are the kingdom pronouncements over you. And even though God has drawn you out of the kingdom of darkness, even though he's given us these pronouncements, now he gives us grace and he calls us to live according to the calling he has given us, worthy of the name he has bestowed upon us. And listen to this pronouncement, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Of course, the objection is, though. I mean, it, we all have objections. The objection is, you know, we're really discouraged. He has not seen a sinner of the likes of me before. God doesn't have experience rehabbing this broken down house. And those are the lies straight out of hell. The lies we believe. The problem is that we think God assesses the situation like we do. God assesses the situation like we do. That's our problem. So if you are rehabbing a house, you know, to the inexperienced who's buying a house, you know, you walk in, you've got no idea what's going on. You look at the carpet stain and you think, oh, insurmountable problem. Impossible. You see a little bit of a, a crack on the drywall. Oh, this is, this is impossible. It's insurmountable. We are crushed by the fact that the problem exists. We are crushed by the fact that we don't know how to move forward. We're crushed by not knowing what's involved to fix the problem. We've never dealt with it before. And under the weight of what seems unknown to us, we just want to give up. But not God. Remember, God gives his very own self to the project, which means that he undertakes the project with omniscience and omnipotence. So where we are surprised to find new stuff, new problems, God never is. And even if you were to walk into all these different rooms, these new rooms, let's say, these, and find out new ways in which we sin, you know, God, he's already rolled up to the project. He surveys everything from top to bottom. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he rolls up to the project and says, I got this. I got it. The redeeming of the house. The fixing up of the house, the keeping of the house, the maintenance of the house. He says, I got it. But not only does he got it, as in like, uh-oh, this is a really bad problem. Like a bear can't wait till I'm done with it. Can't wait till it's going on its own so I can make some my own money off of it. It's not only that he, he has it covered, it's that he loves it. So, you know, you know, uh, <clears throat> you got some people who see a broken down house and they walk in and they think it's insurmountable, it's nasty. They don't want to touch it. With a 10 foot pole. And then you got people over here who have foresight. They say, oh yeah, not, not a problem. I know these are problems. Every house has problems. But I know where it's going. And I love it. And you got people who come up to like, you know, a, a fixer upper car. And they look at it and say, this is perfect. That's what God does when he rolls up on broken down houses like us. Sinners such as ourselves. Through fixing up the broken down, the truly needy, those who recognize their brokenness, through fixing sinners up, right? That's where there is the most spiritual profit, so to speak. I'm not talking about fixing up those who are as bad as they could be, although God certainly does that. Here, according to the Bible, God fixes up all those who recognize their need for him. And that's where there is, so to speak, the most spiritual profit, and it's because of what he will make of you through his grace. No matter how messed up you think you are. No matter how weak you may think you are. Isn't that what God does? Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he turns up to a pagan Abraham. Nobody knows who he is. says, he's mine. Just wait. I'm going to make him into a great nation. You turn to Israel too. Isn't that what he does with Israel? Smallest among the nations, according to Deuteronomy. He rolls up on Israel and says, you just wait. I'm going to take these weakest people and make them the display of my glory. You take David, for example, the smallest of all of his brothers. He doesn't know anything about fighting. He doesn't know anything about ruling, but yet God thinks it is perfect. Friends, this is what he does with you. First Corinthians 1 says he has chosen the foolish things.
to shame the wise, the weak things in the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before God. You see what God is after. It is not the strong, not the proud. As Luke chapter 5 says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So friends, if you are on your knees, if you are on your face pleading with God to save you, to sanctify you, to make his grace known to you, that's the perfect place to be. Because God saves sinners who see their need for Christ, his righteousness, his salvation, his power, his redemption, and his spirit that makes us new. You're in the perfect place to be to appreciate God's grace through Jesus Christ. As Paul says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as is written, let let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. How can Christ ever become to you those things, righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, redemption, If you think you have them all on your own. How can you ever draw upon all that Christ is for you. If you're so busy trying to earn it on your own. You're trying to fix so hard your own house. When Jesus stands there right there ready to fix you already. And he says look if God says if you trust in Jesus Christ. Christ is all of these things to you. If you see your need. If you swallow down that shame. If you recognize your guilt and all that you have done. God's glory is made known. God's grace is sufficient. This brings us to our third truth of rehab. Number three, you are now under the power of God. Number two was you are not under the power of sin. Number three is you are now under the power of God. The old has passed and the new has come. To continue the rehab analogy, God, the spirit moves in and we are born again. And God begins his restoration plan. And in becoming Christians, not only does the stuff of the world become less attractive, but we actually, by the Spirit, begin developing tastes for good and godly things. We have a new heart, and along with the new heart comes new desires to please God. And over time, God begins to touch, the gospel begins to touch every aspect of our lives. In salvation, we are set apart for the grand builder's purposes. And so now we are under new management, so to speak. And so uh, the work is always a work in progress. So here's another already, not yet. We have already been renewed by the Spirit, already been born again, but at the same time, renewal is not yet completed. Listen to this, Colossians 3, verse 10. Through Christ we have put on the new self, past tense, have put on, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed. So, even though we've been made new, and God is renewing us even now, isn't the truth, though, that we often look at ourselves and say, I would have done it a little differently. Alright, thinking about longings here, sometimes we long and think, oh, my longing is for something a little bit different. Maybe we'd be a little bit quicker to rehab the bedroom. Or maybe it'd be quicker to rehab the front of the house. You know, wish you had more curb appeal in the Christian life. You know, I would hurry up and deal with this problem and that problem. And I wouldn't necessarily struggle with that problem. I mean, have you ever been let down with the fact that God's rehab program is not the same as yours? This is where our groanings and longings can turn angry and bitter. Our rehab plan is different than God's. And in that moment, it's really hard to appreciate what God has done, what God is already doing, and what God will do when all the, t- all the while we're sitting there uh, throwing a hissy fit to God, trying to compel him to start at a different part of the house. The implication is that he's messed up. He doesn't know what he's doing, really. I want him to start over there, but he's starting over here. If that's what we do, we got to wonder why we've become so attached to our plan. It seems to me that in that situation, we've gold-plated our plans for ourselves, and we use God to enable, or God enables us to worship ourselves. For example, you know, maybe we're just thinking, you know, if I could just manage my sexual desires, then I would be married. Then I would be responsible to shepherd a wife. Then I would have whatever it is that comes with me. If I could just manage my sexual desires, 
So you see how that works. Demanding God work on managing sexual desires in order to get you marriage and whatever significance that you've attached to that, whether that be sex, whether that be significance, whether that be you look good in front of your married friends or whether you fit in with everybody else because all of my friends are married. We're so busy trying to get what we want and even coax God into giving us what we want that we miss what God has for us. Greater trust and dependence on Him. Reliance upon His wisdom, His goodness. Submitting ourselves to His plan. Learning to find fulfillment in God alone and not in sexual pleasure. Learning to love the character of God, His holiness, His steadfastness. Learning to love others instead of taking advantage of them. You see how that works there? We can apply this to everything. You know, maybe some of you guys uh, can't help but fear men, and so you're constantly lying, twisting the truth, or constantly manipulating. And what you want is you want to stop lying in order that you would have friends. Because you keep on lying to them, and they all keep on leaving you. They all keep on distancing themselves from you because they can't trust in you. That's not honoring to God. That's using God. It's like throwing God the feather duster and you say, okay, God, you know, start with what I want you to start with and you dust me off because I am the idol for myself. I worship myself. That's not worshiping God. The worship of God involves submitting the keys to God, handing them over and letting God start where he thinks he needs to start with, all according to his plan. And so he might have led you out of darkness but then he might expose certain aspects of your own sin and your own heart and say, no, I want you again to focus on this particular aspect and submit yourself to me and find your significance, find your fulfillment and your satisfaction all in Jesus Christ and Christ's plan for you. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, you know that relinquishing control is the best thing that anybody can do. Relinquishing control to Jesus. Best thing anybody can do. Remember, he knows exactly what needs to happen for you to thrive properly in this world, and especially in the one to come. He is our creator, after all. Now, it is true that his plan might not be what your plan is for yourself, but his plan is good. Because it involves being restored to your maker through the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ calls you now to hand over the keys of your life to him by turning away from your sin and submitting every single area of your life to Christ the Savior. In Him, there is restored relationship to God. In Him, there is forgiveness, redemption, liberation from sin. If you want to be new, no matter what the area is in your life that you want to see renewed, friend, you need to start with having a renewed relationship with God. Because that's where God focuses on. Redemption, reconciliation, trespasses. So let me encourage you, repent of your sin and be saved. The very last truth of rehab that we need to consider if we are to survive this rehab, and we finish here, this is our conclusion as well. God is using you to display the beauty and sufficiency of His grace. God is using you to display the beauty and sufficiency of His grace. You know, oftentimes we, <clears throat> we understand the sufficiency of God's grace to save. So His grace saves us. We get forgiveness. We get right standing and we're in salvation. But oftentimes I feel like in the midst of struggling, in my conversations with many, we forget the sufficiency of God's grace in restoration, in resisting sin, and in recovering from sin, and in repenting from sin. <clears throat> Friends, I recognize that some of you guys might be weighed down with all the sin that you experience. And again, you feel so shamed and unlovable. But you realize that every temptation you experience, that every temptation from sin, the sin that wants to drag you down, that maybe you, you feel right now like you're just plodding along in the Christian life, or maybe you're crawling along, or maybe you feel like you're being dragged along. Every experience battling against sin... And every opportunity to repent is an opportunity to boast in the sufficiency of the cross and His grace again and again and again. So if you're a bit overwhelmed about the darkness that your heart 
can produce. You know, you go into an ugly room and you see some really ugly things that you hadn't before. You struggle in ways that you hadn't before. You realize, friends, that God's grace is there to meet you in that situation. And you, 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 kinda, you shirk back and looking at the kingdom of darkness, you say, oh my goodness, I didn't know that that was in there. And sometimes if you rely on yourselves, you can freak out a bit, or maybe you'll freak out a lot. Maybe you even think that, <clears throat> I was talking to one person, he thought, given this one sin, he thought that he was losing his salvation. That God no longer loved him and his life was spiraling out of control because he didn't realize that that sin was in him. That he was capable of all of that darkness and he was freaking out. The wonderful thing, though, is God had an alternate plan for those of you, all of us, who continue to sin. I mean, have you ever wondered that? Like, why doesn't God just immediately make us perfect? Is Is there grace in the midst of salvation, or sorry, in the process of sanctification while we're battling sin? We get that when we are saved, we have grace for salvation. It gets us in. But then when it comes to struggling, oftentimes we forget. But in God's plan, even though he knows that we're going to sin, his intention is that in the middle of the sin, we would turn back to the grace of God and sanctification. The grace of God. And then we respond to the ugliness and we cry out, God, save me from this. God's grace, where is God's grace for this? And then God's grace meets you in the situation. You come up to another one 10 years later and you see there that you're struggling so badly with something else and then you say, God's grace, by God's grace, help me. Is there the sufficiency of God's grace for this situation? And then as your friends recognize these things, right? I mean, your friends, let's say they know you for decades. You're turning up because you are sexually perverted just as we all are. And then God's grace meets us there in that situation. Ten years later, you see, oh my goodness, my perverted heart is more perverted than I thought. Is there God's grace for that situation? You confess your sin. Your brothers and sisters are preaching the gospel of grace to you. There is salvation in Christ, sufficiency of God's grace, even for the nastiest of sins. And then all of your friends and you, you come to recognize, yes, there is sufficiency of God's grace for that. You roll up 10 years later to something else in a different different situation. And yet, once again, God's grace meets you there in that position. And God's grace saves you from that. God's grace saves you from this and this, and this, and every single moment you give praise to God. God's glory is made known. His grace is seen as sufficient, and His gospel is seen as powerful. Friends, you recognize that you are to be a spectacle of God's grace to sinners as they see the power of God to save and transform even the darkest of hearts. A spectacle of grace. And now he calls you to let himself do that to you. He calls you to submit himself to his saving grace. I know that in the midst of struggles we can feel like we need to deal with it on our own. No one can see the nastiness and the ugliness that we produce. But the best thing, friends, to do is actually to open up those rooms. Let people in and help and ask them to remind you that there is grace for your time of need. Friends, as God adds people like you, sinners like you, into his church, God is busy putting together an army who marches to the sufficiency of his grace in the gospel. In our flesh, right? Aren't we the weakest army the world has ever seen? <laughs> We're like the army in our flesh that says, yeah, you're right, I can't do anything, nothing, because God's grace does it all. And at various times, we are bounding in our Christian life. We are, maybe we are walking at other times. Maybe we are limping at other times. Sometimes even, we need our brothers and sisters to carry us on the stretcher. All the while preaching to us. While we feel like we are being dragged down by Satan. All the while they preach to us the sufficiency of God's grace in the gospel. But God would have it no other way. From the moment God delivers us out of slavery to sin... And then as he walks along with us on our journey of faith, all the way until he brings us to the gates of heaven. We are supposed to live in a way in our confession and our repentance and our pleading with God's grace, just as we saw David do in Psalm 51. We plead all the way back home the grace of God as salvation belongs to the Lord. God is making all things new. 
starting with you, Christian. Four truths to remember in rehab. You are loved by God. You are not under the power of sin, but instead you are under the power of the gospel. And he's using you in your weakness to display the beauty and sufficiency of his grace in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your divine power. We thank you that you have given us, pledged to us, your divine power in that you would work in us. And there is no sinner too far away from your grace. There is no sin too ugly to make you turn away from those that you've saved. Lord, we thank you for the examples in Scripture, how they are, how people in Scripture are a twisted people, a sinful people. Lord, you saved murderers and drunkards. You saved the sexually perverted. You save the thieves. You save liars. You save deceivers. You save the hostile and the angry. And Lord, you save even those who wanted to kill your very own son. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your arm of salvation is so long and so strong and that no one is out of reach from your grace. Father, we pray again for those who might be suffering under condemnation, under weight of guilt, under shame. Lord, we pray that they would know so clearly that they are new creations in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move them towards submitting all of this nastiness that they might see in their very own souls to your grace that changes and purifies and sanctifies. Lord, we recognize that we are sanctified and set apart for your holy use. How amazing is that, that you would set apart us as sinners for your holy use. And how awesome is it, Lord, that you continue to make us new. That we are being renewed to be changed more into the image of your great Son. Father, we pray that the goal would always be in mind. That Christ Jesus would be our goal. That you are making us all that you are transforming us into your, the image of your Son, so that the Son's glory would be exalted. Not so our glory would be exalted, but so that you would receive the glory, so that you would be exalted and magnified and made large in our lives. Help us know that we cannot do this by relying on our own selves, but by being the weak people that we are, strengthened by the grace of God, Lord, we thank you for the gospel that brings us all the way home. We pray, Lord, that you would help us continue to rely on it, no matter what trials and temptations and difficulties we face. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.